I know of a few examples. There's a Rolling Stones concert where really the, the different songs that were being played were recorded very easily <laughs> on, on the on the seismometers. But also in Barcelona, Messi quakes. <laughs> so whenever Messi scored, there was a very clear signal on the seismometers <laughs> close by. That's pretty good. Welcome back to the Pint of Science podcast, episode two. How are you doing, Jim? Yeah, I'm pretty good, Callum. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Yep, getting used to this lockdown lark. For those tuning in at a later date, we are still in the midst of the global coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we're in lockdown week. What week are we in now? I think it might be week eight or something now. That's right. And this week, we have caught up with a scientist whose research you might not expect to be affected by the pandemic, but fascinatingly, it has been affected in almost a positive way. We caught up with Dr. Paula Kulamaya, who's a global seismologist at the Department of Earth Sciences at the Royal Holloway. Uh, now, I didn't know much about seismology. Were you an expert in seismology before this podcast, Jim? Yeah, obviously. Yeah, absolute expert, knew everything. <laughs> no, I think no, you no. probably did it quite a lot more than me. Being, I had to literally look up the, the definition of seismology for this introduction. <laughs> no, so, no. <laughs> okay, well, no, I, I, I vaguely knew what it was about before. You know, I, my brief geology experience gave me like a little bit of uh, a little bit of background. <laughs> cool. Well. Turns out seismology is the study of earthquakes and seismic waves that move within the planet. Uh, and it's one of the fields of research that coronavirus has actually presented something of an opportunity for novel data collection. So although we know that the pandemic's had a devastating effect on society at large uh, in terms of a loss of life, drastic impact on our social and our economic situation, um, I would say that seismology can be described as an area of research where it's a bit of a silver lining researchers around the world have found they can hear an awful lot more of what's going on uh, under the ground thanks to the lack of people stumping around essentially anthropogenic noise i think is the, the phrase that we're the thing that we're talking about that's right now we caught up with paula via video link so uh sit down get yourself comfortable grab a drink and enjoy episode two of the pint of science podcast just before we kick off, I can see there's someone hovering just outside my house waiting to get in. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> this is the joy of recording from home. Yeah, the first thing I kind of wanted to, to ask you, as someone who really does not know a lot about seismology, kind of essentially what, you know, describe a, a day in the life of a, a seismologist and what is it that you specifically focus on in your research? Seismology really has two sides to it. On the one side, it's the study of earthquake risk and hazard. Um, so that we can characterize what the chances are of particular earthquakes of particular magnitude happening in, in certain earthquake-prone uh, areas so that buildings can, can withstand these. Seismology is also the imaging of the earth and structures within the earth. And effectively, we use the seismic waves that are emitted at earthquakes as X-rays that allow us to see through the earth. And we make CT scans of the earth effectively. And that way we can diagnose the processes that happen within the Earth and lead to the, the current dynamic Earth that we have with plate tectonics and magnetic field, etc. So as a researcher based here in the UK, uh, is the earthquake side of it, is that something that's hugely relevant directly here in the UK? Or is, is your work more focused on the kind of imaging things that are beneath the surface using that data? My work typically has focused on imaging um, the, the deeper Earth about two, three thousand kilometers below our feet, so quite deep. But I've also been interested in local earthquakes because I 
got a little seismometer myself that I put in my house so that I could see what was what was happening around us. So I've been more interested in in picking up some some signals. But typically, I haven't looked much at the earthquake risk and hazard uh, side of things. How long have you had a size seismometer in your house for? Is that a new thing, or have you always had your own bits of kit in the flat? Almost a year now. We've had we've had it running. The, the reason I installed it was that there was a Metallica concert happening at Twickenham Stadium and we live quite close and I wanted to see whether I could pick up anything from that because there's some, there's some recordings from um, Barcelona or other locations where they've picked up, or I think somewhere in the UK, where they picked up um, a Rolling Stones concert and based on the dancing of the crowd, um, because the crowd keeps dancing a different rhythm to a different song, they could see this in the seismic data and could see how, how the crowd dance differently and uh, so i wanted to see that for the metallica concert but could you see it could you detect metallica <laughs> um no not the problem was that we only have a vertical component um sensor so it only me- measures the vertical displacement of the ground and i think i needed to have horizontal data to see more of 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 this signal um so i i didn't see anything which was a bit uh... of a shame but then i've kept it running since so about a year <laughs> Are there any other like massive kind of cultural events you have managed to pick up on there or is it yet to pick up a concert? <laughs> yet to pick up a concert or rugby match, but there are some interesting things you can see. So we're close to a, a train line to uh, Waterloo, um, so we can pick up the train schedule really nicely. And laundry machines have a very characteristic signature, which you see the ramping up of the spinning cycles very nicely in the, in the, in the seismic data with several harmonics as well. So you can see what time people in the road are doing their laundry. Well, I literally <laughs> turned off my laundry before we started this podcast for exactly that reason. It's quite a disruptive machine. That's amazing. I think what we've sort of been alluding to, trains and, um, and you know, sort of people doing stuff, is, is that what we describe as anthropogenic noise? Yes. Seismometers record data all the time, continuously, because we also have earthquakes happening all the time. <laughs> and that means we're picking up all kinds of signals on our instruments, not just the earthquakes themselves. Some of this data, some of this signal is noise due to storms or some background noise that is that is in the earth called the hum. But locally, you can also see the noise due to our human activities. So that would be our commuting, our trains, buses, cars, driving, but also big construction sites or, or concerts or sporting matches. I would say anything that's yeah, due to human activity would be the anthropogenic noise. Okay. And, and this is what we've seen a drop in in the lockdown. Is that right? Yes. Officially, we can't see what we've seen a drop in. <laughs> we've just in general seen a drop in seismic signals. And finding out what exactly that drop is due to is more difficult. But given that it coincides with the lockdown timings, we attribute it to this anthropogenic noise being less particularly in locations, for example, a, a sta- station close to a motorway or a station in a, in a university campus, you see a very clear drop-off. So that is, we can clearly attribute that to a drop in, in human activities and anthropogenic noise. But in other locations, it's a bit more tricky to see that. Is it comparable to something you might see at other times of year? For example, I imagine like Christmas or times like that when a lot of people are off work. Do you, do you see a similar drop off in background noise on those occasions? Yes, um, it depends a little bit on the location. But in a lot of places, the quietness that we're seeing now is similar to the, the periods around Christmas or even less. 
particularly nights have also become quieter in a lot of locations because people are not going out in the evening so much um, right, or, okay. or partying. So nights are, it's not just during the day, nights seem also to be quieter. Is this a, a golden opportunity for seismologists then? Is, is seismic noise, is it something that sort of gets in the way of your day to day or is it something that you've sort of, you automatically filter out? Normally the, the noise due to anthropogenic uh, activities uh, is in the way for us as seismologists, unless you're interested in, in that part of signal, because we want to look at the natural signals, the, the earthquakes. And this human noise makes it much harder to, to pick those out. If it's a very noisy station, you would have to throw away a lot of your data often if you want to look at earthquakes. And that's the main reason that normally we do not have seismometers running in cities. So there's not many permanent installations uh-huh. in cities. There's some, um, there's some historical ones. So, the, for example, the one in Brussels where Thomas Lecoq started this, this investigation, mm-hmm. that it's in the city lo- centre because it's older than that part of the city. Uh-huh. So the city was kind of... Yeah. yeah, the city grew around it. But otherwise, we wouldn't really have permanent stations in, in, in cities. Now, a lot of people have these raspberry shakes, which is the instrument I have running at home which is uh, like a citizen science instrument that anyone can purchase and you need a Wi-Fi connection and a, and a power cable to it. And you can just look at all the seismic data. But those are running in, in, in cities a lot more and are now quite useful data to see these drop-offs as well. How much does a raspberry shake cost and where does someone buy one of those? That sounds quite interesting. <laughs> it's a few hundred pounds, I think. Depends a little bit on the instrument you get, and I ordered mine online. Is it relate, related to the um, the Raspberry Pi, the the sort of yes, it's basically coding. a Raspberry Pi. It's a Raspberry Pi with a little. So seismometer in principle is very. It's a very simple principle. It's a magnet, a spring, and a, a coil, and the magnet starts moving within the coil um, when the Earth moves, and that generates a current that you pick up with the Raspberry Pi and convert into the signal. It's a very small Raspberry Pi, effectively, with a little magnet and coil. Does you, you walking around the house not cause all sorts of disruption to the signals you're detecting, or is that on a completely different scale to things like the seismic noise you're describing? No, you would see that as well. It would be okay. quite a sharp impulse. So the, the decrease that we've currently been seeing is not in individual signals. It's when you look at an average over time. So... The data that people typically have been plotting that have been appearing online have been a daily average of the the background noise level. So all these smaller signals of us walking around, you wouldn't see in that really. Okay. So are you going to compare your new house and your old house uh, at the seismic date? I will once once we get a chance (laughs) to move. (laughs) You're going to see how noisy the new area is. It should be quieter, but well, because um, the old uh, location is in Twickenham, there's quite a lot of trains and, and buses yeah. uh, around, whereas we would be further out uh, later on. Oh, nice. <laughs> but a lot of people have been comparing um, signals all around the globe. So I'm now part of a, a group who's looking globally at these signals because all our seismic data is open. So most data is live streamed to a big data center and anyone can download it. So it's not that you need particular access to a lot of the seismic data and it's very easy to look at other stations around the globe so i've looked at some in in japan and and south korea and africa um, and everyone is is looking globally to see how these signals compare so london is not 
as extreme as, as other locations, for example. I think particularly in Nepal, there were some instruments running in schools which have seen a 70% reduction in, in these noise levels or some of the university campuses in the US. Oh, wow. But also China, there's some data from where we see this reduction in the noise and also it's slowly coming back now again with uh, measures being relaxed slowly. That's a really interesting part of this that I was thinking about. So obviously you've seen this drop off once lockdown's introduced, but are you able to kind of get a, a proxy measurement for whether people are adhering to social lockdown measures? You know, are you starting to see levels creep up again in, in London, say, since yes. the lockdown began? You are? Yeah, well, it depends a bit. I've looked at about 10 stations around London, and in some locations you can see that noise levels are increasing, in other locations not so much. But it's very difficult to see what this is due to because you can't pick up an individual person. You see an average of, of that area. Mm. So whether it's people not adhering to uh, guidelines or whether it's that people are returning to work because there's now a safe way for them to return to work. Perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I probably shouldn't have said not adhering, just uh, <laughs> just changes to the guidelines in general. Yeah, to people's behavior. Yeah, we can definitely see the changes to people's behavior and that certain areas are becoming uh, busier. And that will be a really interesting aspect to, to look at now that uh, certain things will be allowed again. It will allow us to characterize those parts of human activities in the seismic noise, whereas when the lockdown started, everything stopped. And it, you couldn't, it's difficult to pick out the different sources of the mm. noise. But now when slowly certain things are allowed, you can perhaps discriminate between these in the ah. noise. Well. So process of elimination, if, if, yeah, if sort of trains start running again, you go, oh, so this must be a train. So yeah. is that going to, is that going to be helpful going forward then? Yeah, I think so. That will be interesting because understanding these different sources of the noise better can be useful for future installments for more permanent stations uh, around cities. It's all knowledge that we can use when you plan a, a new instrument um, installment. Ah. And I guess aside from the sort of the lockdown, uh, like the, the sort of the human aspect, you know, we can sort of associate some noise with human activity. Have you, you know, have you detected earthquakes that you wouldn't be able to detect before? Have you found anything new and exciting because of the, the new period of quietness? Around London, not so much yet. Um, but in general, yes, the fact that our anthropogenic noise is, is lower means that we can pick up smaller earthquakes in, in different locations. And that can be really useful to characterize the seismic risk in these areas because we expect 10 times as many small earthquakes for every larger earthquake. So 10 times as many magnitude 3 earthquakes for every magnitude 4 earthquake. And you might not have this magnitude 4 earthquake in a certain location. So you don't think that there is much seismic activity because you haven't been able to pick up the magnitude 3s. But now if it's quieter, you can see these smaller earthquakes you can learn about the seismic risk in, in certain areas as well. So that is definitely useful. And people are looking at that around the globe at different locations, close to volcanoes, where people can pick up smaller earthquakes, perhaps magnitude one earthquake they can pack, pick up now. And in the past, they couldn't, so they can see what the volcano is doing. So there's a lot of useful aspects. For imaging the deeper earth, it will depend on how long the the lockdowns last, how much extra data we would obtain from larger earthquakes, because we generally already use thousands to millions of, of data anyway in our imaging processes. Okay, yeah. 
you do hear about occasional earthquakes in the UK. Is there kind of <laughs> seismic activity you're detecting in, in the UK, like things you hadn't seen before the lockdown that are emerging? Or is it mainly other bits of the world that that's uh, Yeah, because you were mentioning topic. for every magnitude four, you get 10 magnitude threes. Is that something, so a magnitude three, is that something that, like, would people be able to feel that just out and about? Or is that something imperceptible that you could only really detect through a, a seismometer? There's not that much activity in, in the UK in general. Um, I'm not an expert on, on that part. A magnitude three would be already quite hard to detect uh, if you're living in a city, well, a magnitude four would already be quite hard to detect sometimes. So a magnitude three would be very difficult for you to feel yourself. But our instruments are just really sensitive. Yeah. Whether we are detecting these kind of signals at the moment, like around London, I don't. They they are probably still within the noise, but a lot more analysis is is required for that. What I have noticed is that in the English Channel, the French Navy occasionally sets off blasts from old World War One and Two material to, to safely detonate these. Uh-huh. And these are roughly equivalent to magnitude three earthquakes in terms of the energy that's released at these blasts. Really? Oh, wow. And if you look at older timings of these, because the Belgian and French network are picking them up as well and, and timing them, if you try and look at these signals last year, October, November, we don't really see them on the English stations. But now a station on the western side of London can also pick up these kind of blasts from, from there because it's quite a strong, short signal. Um, it's not an earthquake signal, but it's a, an explosion, effectively, that you can pick up. <laughs> so those I have noticed that we, we've been picking up better <laughs> on the south coast and south side of London a bit of a side note, but how easy is it for seismologists to be doing all this work from home? Presumably, there must be a sort of clamoring to get as much of this data gathered during this quiet period as possible. But are you are you kind of limited by the fact that you can't be using extremely powerful computers to analyze this data or is working from home doable? We are very lucky as, as seismologists, I think, that at least I am and, and I think a lot of my colleagues are entirely computational based. So all I need is a login um, and I and an internet connection and I can log in to my supercomputer somewhere else and process data. Ah. And also downloading all the seismic data is, is possible because these are generally hosted online. So we can work very easily as normal at the moment, which is very useful. Yeah. Oh, that's good, yeah. On a bigger scale, it sounds like you've got a good, uh, the field in general, the way you kind of combine all your data and have it all kind of collectively usable by different people who can also work remotely. That's an incredibly collaborative field in a way, isn't it? Because some some research fields are very, it's much harder to share data in the same way. People are maybe like keep certain elements of the data to themselves or it's not as easy to to work remotely so you have to have certain equipment but that sounds like a kind of incredibly good setup yeah seismology is a very open science in general there are of course occasionally projects which are restricted so if you have uh, gone into the field and installed 20 seismometers yourself for a particular uh, purpose then the general rule is that you keep that data to yourself perhaps for two, three years. And after that, it's released to the community so that you have some time to to analyze the data and, and write something up about it. Mm. But then because all our research is still publicly funded, the data will, is always released after a three-year period to the wider community and can be used then by by anyone. So your research group doesn't focus on on earthquakes so much as imaging what's beneath the Earth's crust. Is that fair to say? It's called yes. deep, Deepscape, your research group, isn't it? Yeah, I typically look at much deeper 
earth structure, not just below the earth's crust, but very much closer to the core. So 2,000 to 3,000 kilometers down uh, below our feet. And the crust itself, we, we treat as a, as a correction to our data generally. We... <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> just an afterthought. <laughs> oh, nice. But but earthquakes could be, in this context, earthquakes are just useful as a source of data for you about the structure of the Earth. Yes. Same way as, as we use sources for medical imaging. Um, you, use these, you use waves to illuminate what's inside a body, and we use waves of high enough energy to illuminate what's in the Earth, and earthquakes are very useful for that. Noise itself has also been used for, for imaging structures inside the Earth. So about 15 years ago, it was demonstrated that actually by cleverly combining recordings of noise at different locations, you could also use this effectively to image structures deeper in the Earth. And that's a big field now as well. When you talk about the deep Earth, are we talking like down to, I mean, literally my memory of the Earth structure goes right back to secondary school. I'm pretty much picturing inner and outer core mantle crust. Is it, what, what sort of structures are you, are you looking at and what kind of, how is that information applied? Is it purely just out of kind of interest as to what the Earth looks like inside or is it, does it have a, a more direct application? So I mainly look at the boundary between the core and the mantle of the Earth. So that's about 3,000 uh, kilometers deep. And it's uh, an interesting boundary because the outer core is, is liquid and the lower mantle is uh, solid. Quite a contrast in, in properties and a temperature jump of about 1,000 degrees. So it's quite extreme changes. And this boundary is interesting because it affects the convection that happens in the Earth's mantle, which ultimately drives also the plates motions on the Earth's surface. But also it affects the convection in the outer core and that generates our magnetic field. So it doesn't directly influence our life and there's no direct application from looking at these structures in the deep mantle. But by characterizing them, we can better understand these dynamic processes in both the mantle and the outer core and they still affect things that that are important for our life on Earth. So without a magnetic field, we wouldn't be able to be living on Earth. And without plate tectonics and mantle convection, perhaps the conditions for life um, to arise wouldn't have been created. And also our atmosphere wouldn't be regenerated in the same way. Yeah, no direct applications, but still interesting processes to look at. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean... The start of all life on Earth. That sounds like a pretty important <laughs> thing to know more about. <laughs> and yeah, the air that we breathe also quite important. <laughs> yep. A couple of key things there. <laughs> yeah. I did take a look at some of the publications you have on your, your website, and I noticed one that really caught my eye was to do with elephants, which I didn't <laughs> expect. <laughs> Would you be able to talk us through that one? Sure. The Elephant Project is a project I'm, I'm collaborating with uh, researchers in Oxford who started the, the project, which is a collaboration between zoology and seismology, because due to their large size, it's expected that elephants could generate quite a strong seismic uh, signal when they, when they move through walking or running, but also through the sounds that they make, their rumbles. Oh, that is in the actual noises they produce, like their vocal. Yeah, the actual vocals. noises that they produce. Oh, wow. Through their bones, that those that gener also has um, generates vibrations that can go into the ground and travel through the ground in a seismic waves. Wow. And there's been past research where they suggested that perhaps elephants use seismic waves to communicate with each other. 
and that these seismic waves would be traveling over longer distances than the acoustic signals, the sound waves, which is typically four to five kilometers for the sound waves. So there's been two field trip campaigns so far in Kenya where we've, we've done some experiments to install seismometers close to the elephants to see what we would pick up. And in the, in the publication that you referred to, which a master student worked on, the conclusion was that we can see differences, the different behaviors from elephants we can see as differences in the seismic data. And perhaps that means that remote seismic recordings of elephants, you could use that to discriminate what their behavior is and perhaps inform on poaching threats that right. way. Right, okay. Wow, that's yeah, amazing. That's so if the whole herd starts panicking, could you notice that in real time remotely and that way send in someone who could who could check up on it? That is still a long way in the future. A lot of the work going on at the moment is still preliminary, but that's kind of the long-term uh, aim of it. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, you would never think, would you, that elephant research involves literally detecting the movement <laughs> yeah, of the elephant. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice thing about, uh, once, yeah, I guess physics in a way, that once you understand the, the physics and you, you know how to model this, you, applying yeah. it to a different to everything of, of application is quite straightforward it's just a different scale or a different frequency that you look at but the physics behind it remains the same in the end wow presumably it'd have to get a lot lot quieter to detect oh, yes. elephants <laughs> on your uh, your home raspberry shake <laughs> not sure i can't hear them now <laughs> i wonder maybe an example of something a little closer to home that presumably you could detect would be something like fracking as fracking is obviously something that's quite a kind of controversial practice that's coming into more extensive use here in the uk and there's been a lot of talk about how that could be kind of size size seismically Se- seismically is that the right word <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah seism- seismically um kind of destabilizing uh, is that something you have any research interest in so far i haven't and um my fascination remains with the, with the deeper earth but i know that there are a lot of researchers within the uk looking at this and particularly the british geological survey has a network of seismometers around the uk which are permanent stations and and have much higher quality data that allow to look at this uh, in more detail, but I haven't really looked at it. I've, I've stayed in the deep earth mostly. <laughs> sure. No, that's, that's, that's a fair. better place to be by the sounds of it. So as, as the, uh, the lockdown ends, then we're, we're going to see this kind of change in seismic activity. We're going to see things ramping up again. I kind of wanted to know, are there any other, you mentioned the Metallica concert earlier on in the conversation. Are there any other kind of notable examples of flashpoints in anthropogenic noise, you know, events that have taken place that were detected kind of around the world, be they like, yeah, a massive yeah. concert or... World Cup final or something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know of a few examples. There's Rolling Stones concert where really the, the different songs that were being played were recorded very easily <laughs> on, on, the, on the seismometers. But also in Barcelona, Messi quakes... <laughs> So whenever Messi scored, there was a very clear signal on the seismometer <laughs> close by. That's pretty good. It must be quite an honor to have a, a seismic event named after you. Yeah, if you're that good. Yes. <laughs> Literally moving the earth. That's pretty we cannot, good. We cannot look at individuals, really. Like We don't play detective and we would not want to play detective. That's not our role. But you, you really need quite a large crowd of people acting in a similar way for it to be a, a clear seismic signal. So a whole stadium jumping up and down because Messi scored, that is something you, you can get locally. But a few people walking around, you wouldn't notice so much. 
But the fact that globally we do see this decrease in seismic noise does mean we can see that people are adhering to all these lockdown measures around the world. And really, it's a global phenomenon. People are not in this on their own. Everyone is doing the same thing effectively and the whole globe is, is slowing down and, and, and staying at home, which is important at the moment. And so perhaps that the fact we really see this globally can also be a motivation to people that, yeah, we're not in this on our own. We're in this yeah. together. Yeah, absolutely. Has anyone suggested the idea of tracking, actually using this the seismic data to track the lockdown itself? Like not just have it as a, a sort of as a, a side effect, but, you know, actively looking at it, using it as scientists or as governments? Well, either. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure we want to get quite into the, the government side of things, but uh, yeah, yeah. No, no. And I think as seismologists, we want to stay away from that very much as well. We're, yeah, it's not, yeah. not our role and we're not, we're not detected. Yeah. But, and, and we would not be able to because we can't, as I said, we don't see an individual. We see yeah. an average over a particular region. So there's, at the moment, there's a large group of uh, seismologists working together online started by by Thomas Lecoq in in Brussels who who started looking at this decrease in the in the seismic noise and there's about 80 to 90 um seismologists in this at the moment working together characterizing the drop in seismic noise at different locations around the world and trying to put this together and probably with a lot of follow up studies coming as well it must be quite exciting to be part of one of these kind of few research areas where it does pose an opportunity obviously you know, on the grand scale, the pandemic is an awful thing that's causing a huge loss of life and economic and social cost. But it, there are a few specific fields, yours, for example, uh, I, I guess, environmental research to an extent, and a lot of kind of research surrounding the natural world. I imagine having people indoors does pose an opportunity for some of those research areas to just kind of sort of get a clearer picture without all the noise that humans bring with them. Yes, definitely. We realize both sides of this. At, at the one hand, this is an opportunity for us. On the other hand, it's also due to or to the current circumstances, which which affect a lot of people um, in in negative ways as well. And I think as seismologists, we're used to dealing with these two sides of of it because our data most of the time come from earthquakes, and often those are also devastating earthquakes that also cost lives and have economic losses and and habitat losses. So. As seismologists, we are perhaps a little bit used to having to deal with both aspects of, of our data. Uh, I use magnitude seven and uh, a half or larger earthquakes typically. So it's very useful data for us to look at the earth, but it also affects a lot of people's um, lives. Yeah, magnitude yeah. seven and a half for someone who's not an expert. That I mean, that's that's colossal, isn't it? That's kind of the... Yes. Yeah. The sort of things you get Very in big. places. And we prefer earthquakes yeah. that are deep. And if a magnitude 7 happened, for example, at 400 kilometers depth, which sometimes uh, happens, then there wouldn't be that much damage on the on the Earth's surface, but would still be a very useful signal. But we just have to make the most of these data when, when they arise as well and, and, and try and use them to our, to our best uh, efforts so mm-hmm. that we can learn more about the Earth and understand the Earth better in the end. And are there any particular projects that Deepscape has on the go right now that you wanted basically a chance to kind of chat about? And I'm, <laughs> I'm finding this like fascinating. I knew so little about seismology <laughs> beforehand. I'm finding out so many applications I'd never even thought of. It's fine if the answer to that is no <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
there's a lot of projects on the go, but mostly to do with the deep mantle, trying to characterize these two giant blobs that are present in the mantle. So that these these are um, about a thousand, fifteen hundred kilometers high. So they're very large structures. If they were on the Earth's surface, the ISS would have to kind of navigate around them. So they're they're right. very big structures in, inside the Earth that we try and characterize, try and characterize the flow in the mantle. Sorry, those two blocks, because I saw I saw a story last week that researchers had, had sort of figured out why the the magnetic North Pole was shifting around. Is that is the, the, those blobs that are responsible for that? It's. I mean that that might be that might be a very silly question. These two blobs might influence processes in, in the outer core. Depending on what these blobs are, more heat might be extracted from the Earth's core at these locations, or or less heat. And if you extract heat from the core in more or less amounts in different places, that can influence the processes um, that happen within the core. So instead of a homogeneous heat extraction from the core, it varies. And so that can influence the, the, the flow in the outer core and therefore also influence the, the magnetic field. But that link between the lower mantle and, and the outer core is is still very much a topic of ongoing research. And we still don't know what these blobs are necessarily. So we don't know how they're influencing how heat is extracted from the core. But it does it relate to each other. I'm kind of getting a bit of a, a mental image of the research you do and the kind of deep earth being similar to the um, the sort of research that goes into the ocean floor. You know, when people talk about there being this incredible landscape that we don't even know about in the kind of ocean floor, I kind of feel like, you're almost talking about going a step deeper and there's this sort of whole world of <laughs> almost a landscape to understand that's like within the core of the earth itself. Is that a fair way to look at it? Definitely. And there, yeah, there are these landscapes in, in the earth that are fascinating to look at. And it's not only, like partly it's a literal landscape. So there's topography on some of these internal boundaries. The core is not just a nice sphere as we normally depict it, but there's topography, mm. some mountains and valleys on it as well that can be a few kilometers high. Probably the pictures you normally see are accurate because on the scale of the Earth, you wouldn't see a few kilometers, but there are kilometer high uh, structures and there are very strong variations laterally, spatially as well in the deeper mantle and effectively close to the Earth's surface where we have the crust and we have continents and, and oceans in between. Those strong lateral variations we also, to some extent, have in, in the deep mantle. And we try and characterize that as best as possible to really understand the evolution of the Earth better. Wow. And I mean, this is the wrong time to ask this question, really, because we've already <laughs> taken enough of your yeah, time. But already... I'm, I'm just too interested not to ask. The um, Is there seismic data gathered uh, on other planets? When we send out the Mars rover, is that part of what it's gathering? It seems like you can gain a lot from this kind of data, like a lot of understanding about other planets. Mm. Definitely. And it's one of the few ways that we really have to see inside a planet. In terms of other planets, the, the first other planetary body that we had seismic data from was the moon. The Apollo missions had seismometers uh, on board, and there were a few installed on the moon's surface that recorded data that have been analyzed and tell us a little bit about the interior structure of the moon, which also has a core and a, and a mantle. And there are different types of moonquakes that that occur on the moon. Moonquakes. Moonquakes. <laughs> this is a whole other episode. We've got to have another episode on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we really do. And then on Mars, a mission that, that landed in November 2018, the InSight mission, 
had a seismometer on board uh, and a heat flow probe. And the primary aim of that mission is to look at the interior of Mars. So it's not one of the rovers that's um, wandering around. It's a static rover just sitting on the surface with a seismometer trying to to listen to Mars quakes. And it's been active for almost one and a half years. And it has detected some Mars quakes as well. So there are indications that Mars has some tectonic activity probably so there's mars quakes moon quakes messy quakes <laughs> yeah and we're yet to detect a metallic quake but it will happen wow and raspberry shakes <laughs> <laughs> perfect that's been such a fascinating chat thank you so much yeah if there's anything else that you want to add or you know promote or anything like that no i think we've covered quite a lot <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this has been a, a very wide. Yeah, I know we said twenty minutes purely focused on the lockdown, but I, yeah, we managed. To, I'm sure, we managed to get a lot of uh, other stuff in there. Yes. <laughs> oh well, Callum, that was quite interesting. I mean, I wonder if we'll ever have a quake named after us. I can only hope. Uh, how does one get a quake named after themselves? You'd have to make some kind of absolutely colossal anthropogenic noise i think yeah do something that i mean i reckon if you if you annoyed your whole street enough that they all came out and started jumping up and down at the same time that could probably be detected you know if someone had a seismometer in their front room on that street so yeah all you have to do is you know knock a door run your entire (laughs) your entire neighborhood boom there you go callum quake you definitely should do it because then you could call it a hake quake Oh, uh, I've always that's, wanted a hate. That's what <laughs> I've always wanted it. I only realized that just now. <laughs> <laughs> one of the questions we never got in was whether if everyone in the world jumped at once, would it cause oh, yeah. some we're, kind we're... of seismic <laughs> event? Would it knock us out of orbit? That's what everyone used to say at school, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. or would it compact the Earth ever so slightly? Would the <laughs> Earth just grow like a millimeter You know, more, more dense? <laughs> I don't know. These are the kind of pressing questions <laughs> that we deal with here at the Pint of Science podcast. Um, yes, indeed. But that was a that was a fascinating look inside the Earth with with Paula, and really was cool to discover. Well, it was quite shocking to discover quite how much noise that humans make in general, like people's washing machines and dryers. You don't think of them as making much noise on an Earth scale, but turns out, you know, it does make a difference. Depends on your washing machine, Jim. Mine is <laughs> fairly disruptive. So we'll be catching up with more people, um, more more researchers whose work has been affected by the pandemic, uh, some of them in novel and interesting and positive ways occasionally. In future episodes of this series, please keep tuning in. Pint of Science Festival is still uh, obviously not taking place. It should have taken place actually last week when this is going out. So mm. absolutely tragic that the festival has been called off for now however it will be returning and we will keep you updated as soon as we have news you'll hear about it here on the pint of science podcast or you can sign up to the mailing list at pintofscience.co.uk if you feel like supporting the festival during these difficult times you can also go to the pint of science website and you can donate to uh, the festival so it's pintofscience.co.uk slash donate if you'd like to do that thanks for listening and uh, don't forget to subscribe give us a give us a nice review if you enjoyed it Nice one. Tell your friends on social media and we'll see you next episode. See you soon.